Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter, got a lot of stuff to take a look at here today, Acts chapter 7. We've been in a series now going through the book of Acts, um, and we are looking at the life of a guy by the name of Stephen. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers. I would love to get you a Bible. We're looking at the life of Stephen. Um, Stephen was one of seven people that were basically selected to serve uh, within the church, uh, particularly helping out um, uh, uh, what was uh, observed or seen as a neglected people group called the Hellenist Widows. These were an old Older uh, company of, of ladies, probably, no, no doubt ladies, of course, but we don't, whether or not they were older or not, we don't, we don't really know that for sure. Um, um, but they felt neglected. So the church basically tried to problem solve and came up with the solution of being able to help them. And Stephen was one of the seven guys that was basically selected for this. And then we saw at the end of uh, chapter six that Stephen gets uh, entangled in this conversation with another group of religious leaders, and they begin to ask him questions about Jesus, and then he begins to answer. And so that's kind of where we pick it up at chapter 7. And before we jump in there, what I want to do is I'm, I'm not going to read through the entire chapter, just to tell you that up front. There's actually 60 verses. It's a very uh, exceptionally long chapter, but I will highlight several of the main points. Um, and before, before we jump in, I want to I pray because um, uh, be really frank with you, I, f- I feel kind of overwhelmed with the amount of content that's here and trying to keep it within a 45-minute uh, segment. Um, I mean, I, if, if without any, like, restraint, I can preach this for, like, three hours. Um, that wouldn't really be too kind to you guys. I know a couple of you are like, let's do it. Um, you are the ones that are single and don't have kids. <laughs> All right? It's just simply the fact. Um, the rest of you are like, oh, thank God he's not going to go that long. Um, so I'm going to pray. Um, we have a lot to cover, and, um, and, and hopefully within a timely manner, and hopefully in a way that is cohesive, and will really, at the end of the day, stir your heart to consider this uh, incredible, incredible message, this incredible story that uh, the early church was all about proclaiming. And we have been handed uh, by the early church this same message to proclaim, to communicate that, like uh, Greg had mentioned earlier, not only comforts us, but also provides this pathway to hope for, um, for our future. Um, because that's, that's the very nature of God, is to not only bring comfort in the midst of our trauma and terrible circumstances, but also provide a path of hope. And so that's, that's, the, that's the big game plan for this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in and begin to take a look at the message. So, God... We thank you that you are here, that you're not distant, you're not far. Uh, God, you're here, and we thank you that we can come to you, we can bring our hearts, no matter how wounded or broken or damaged or fragile or rejoicing or excited or happy we might be, God, that uh, we, we turn to you now, and we ask, God, that you would make yourself known, reveal yourself to us. Um, God, lift up those that feel broken and hurt and wounded and uh, bring down those that feel arrogant and prideful, and we condescend upon others, and we are critical of others, uh, God, humble us. Um, so wherever we're at, whoever we are, no matter what we're going through, uh, God, be to us everything that we need you to be uh, that will ultimately bring forth life and healing through you. So uh, we commit this time in your hands, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me, if I were to start kind of a segue by asking you the question, if, if I were to ask you to uh, basically summarize the entire Bible, um, how would you do it? Like, what would your summary be? You know, if, if you ever thought about that, like, 
who would be the main characters that you would basically introduce? Again, let's say you got you know five minutes, ten minutes to basically summarize the entire thing. It's a really big book, by the way. If you've never read it, if you have ever read it, you know, if you've ever kind of like been adventurous and like I'm gonna read through the entire Bible in entire year. So you start January one, and pretty much by January third, you're like, I tap out, I can't do this. It's really long. It's crazy stuff and stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense and it's really difficult to understand. It's tedious. It's it's overwhelming and. Um, and, and a lot of times our relationship to the Bible is, is very distant, um, which is in a lot of ways tragic uh, because uh, everybody within the Bible, especially the New Testament, Jesus, as well as all of his followers, had a very, very close relationship to the Bible. It doesn't mean that it was an easy relationship. It was a very close relationship to the Bible. They knew the storyline of the Bible. For many of us, um, very, we, we might know the various stories. We might know that there was some guy that like, rescued a bunch of animals onto a boat um, we don't really know the backstory, why that happened. We don't really know what happened after that. Uh, we might know like various bits and pieces of information throughout the Bible, but a lot of us don't really know the main narrative, the, the main storyline. So the idea of basically summarizing um, might come across best by just simply us giving various bits and pieces or highlights or moments um, that might stand out in our mind, like we're, like I said, you know, being rescued on a big ship or something like that, or boat, uh, animals, and or David you know, committing sexual sin with Bathsheba or uh, whatnot, uh, slaying Goliath, you know. So we might think about some of these highlights, but the reality is what we're going to see here this morning is this guy by the name of Stephen who basically does this phenomenal summary of the entire narrative or narrative arc of the Scripture in this profound way, and, and, and which, which a lot of things it tells us that he had a really profound understanding of the Scripture. Um, not only in terms of the, the overarching narr- narrative and the arc of Scripture, but also a lot of details that were basically throughout it. So uh, to begin with, in some ways, it's kind of a challenge for us. Like, how well do we know the Scripture? How well do we know uh, really the, the main narrative of what's happening in the Bible? And so um, for some of us, it, the idea of even summarizing this thing would be very, very difficult, um, and the, let alone selecting certain key characters uh, to make sense of this. Um, someone described the, the Bible as not just simply a book, but a library of books. I think that's a great way to think about the Bible. The Bible is basically a library of books. Another way to kind of describe it is this way. It's, it's a series of small stories composing one grand story, one big story. And that's the more, for me personally, I've, I've invested in reading the Bible. And I'm, I am one of those guys that, and, and I'll, be, I'll be straight up blunt and honest, um, I, I am one of the, those guys that have tried every year to, like, read through the Bible. And usually, usually by late January, I'm, I'm just, I'm done. Uh, like, I, I, I can't do it. I, I start missing dates. And before I know it, I'm, like, you know, five, six, ten, you know, uh, 15 days behind. And it's, like, this overwhelming amount of Scripture to do, get, catch up. But, but I am a little bit proud of myself. Like, that hopefully it doesn't come across weird. Um, but I've, I've still been doing it from January 1. And I'm, 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 I'm making my way through. I'm, like, Second Kings right now. I'm still plowing through. I found a pretty good rhythm, and it's, it's working for me, and, um, and I'm, I'm loving it, and what I'm, I'm observing through the scripture, and again, this, I'm like, I'm, you know, going on 46 years old, so I've had many, many years of failure and failing to do this, so if you're kind of like, I can do it, like, just, just know, even like for me, a pastor, like, this is my job, like, reading the Bible, like, I've, I've had a pretty hard time doing it, and that's not to say, you know, I don't study and read the Bible. Anyways, I'm getting off track. I digress. The point of the matter is, is reading the scripture, the more I invest in reading and understanding the scripture, the more I'm blown away by the fact that it is not just simply 
all these series of small stories that we oftentimes tend to get focused on and hung up on, but how these stories dovetail into one another to compose this one big, grand narrative that's absolutely mind, mind-blowing, breathtaking. Um, there, there's, a, there's a picture I'll show you if, if you're kind of graphically minded like the way I am and to help you maybe think about this. Um, I'll show you this next slide. So you got you to think with me. And I, I, had a, I had a hard time trying to find some good artwork. If you guys know who Gunger is, right? He's an artist, Christian artist. Um, but I don't know if you can really see this picture here. But if, if you look at it from a distance, obviously it's, it's flowers. But if you look at it closely, which I couldn't find a high enough uh, resolution photo uh, image of this to kind of uh, to, to, to do what I really wanted to do. But what I really wanted to do is I wanted to zoom in so close to where you can see what, what you can see like the ground is actually made up. What, what I can see right now are bombs and there's a hand grenade. There is a, a missile. There's handcuffs. There's a skull and crossbones. There's a Uzi. I don't know if you can see that. But, but if I was able to, I would take this image and like zoom in 100% on just a bomb, all right? or just an Uzi, or just a fighter jet, and then, then ask you, like, what do you see here? Like, you'd be like, oh, I see a fighter jet. Now, if I were to pan out just a little bit further, so you got to use your imagination here. If I were to pan out just a little bit further, then I would ask, like, what, what now do you see? And you're like, okay, I see a, uh, you know, a, a radiation symbol, and then I also see a, you know, a, a bomb, and I see a hand grenade. And pan out a little bit further, uh, you, you then begin to see um, some other images coming to light. But if you pan out all the way, then you begin to see sort of this, this image, which actually are, are flowers um, coming up out of dry ground. Um, and, and it's this really amazing image. In a lot of ways, this is the story of the Bible. Like, this is the story of the Bible. Like, you can read all these small stories. It's like, oh, my gosh, uh, yes, Noah was on a boat. And the first thing, if you know anything about the story of Noah, like, after he got off the boat, he... He not only offers a sacrifice to God, but he also plants a vineyard and within time gets drunk and does something really horrendous. And, and again, this is the guy that God just rescued to, to become the, the main carrier of his name and do, an, do another generation. So again, a bomb. <laughs> um, you pan out a little bit further and, and you see this extension of Noah's life into the lives of other people. And you might see, you know, other images that are just like bad Im- images, not good. They're like death death-creating images, but if you keep panning out further and further, you get this main plot line, main storyline, main image that begins to uh, arise, and this really is the story of how the Bible works. So you read all these crazy stories that are like, like, like bummers, and, and yet all interwoven together, it, it links to the story of, of goodness. It links to the story of redemption. So this is kind of what Stephen does. So what I'm, what I'm telling you kind of plays into the main issue that we see within the story of Acts chapter 7. So let's, let's jump in and begin to take a look at this. Um, a couple things to think about as we jump into this. Every story, at least every philosophy, every religion seeks to answer at least four questions. And here's what the big four are. One, uh, seeking to ask the question, who are we? Like, who are we as human beings? Who are we as people? Like, question of identity. Um, and, and by the way, we, we are the only living, breathing entity on planet Earth that, that, at least that we're aware of that wrestles with, with this question of existence, of, of who are we. And dolphins, as far as we know, don't wrestle this. Porcupines, uh, elephants, uh, gorillas, apes, uh, bugs, birds. And no, none, according that we know, wrestle with the question of who are we, human beings, wrestle with that question. Who are we? Secondly, uh, is the question of, of where are we? Like, wh- where are we in what we uh, assume, I mean, the, 
the longer time has gone by, the more we become aware of how really vast and big um, the, the expanse is. You know, we realize like we're one of billions of planets in this massive, massive universe. So where are we? Thirdly, what's wrong? Because all of us, we know that something's not quite right. There's all of us, we have this deep awareness that there are certain things that are right, and yet there are certain things that are just consistently wrong in our lives. And so the question of, of what has gone wrong, again, every philosophy, every religion has sought to answer this question. And then finally, what's the solution? Like, like how do we solve um, the, the, the big questions of, like, what's wrong? How do we undo the evil? And so uh, Judaism... Uh, claimed to really answer those questions. I mean, Judaism. Now, Stephen, who we're going to read about in this character, in this story here, who's going to be the main guy kind of recreating the story, retelling the story um, from the very beginning all the way up into the point of where he was at right there. Um, he was very familiar with the story of, of God. He was familiar with the story that really seeks to answer these questions. Who are we? You know, for Stephen, it was like, we, we are Jewish people. We are the descendants of Abraham. Uh, the question of uh, where are we? Well, the, the answer to that is we're possessing a land that has been gifted to us by, by Yahweh. Yahweh has graciously, kindly, covenantally given us property that we call home. And then thirdly, what's wrong? Um, and, and to answer that question, uh, most Jews, they would have answered it by simply saying, we have been a population that has been sold into exile. And currently, we, even though we live in our land, we don't really have rights to our land because we are a land of people. We are a community of people that are under Roman occupation. Rome, uh, even though you know, the land may have belonged to Israel, uh, these were people that were living under the oppression of, of Roman people. So they, they, you know, if you were to ask them, like, what's wrong, that's kind of what their answer would be. Um, and if you got further answers, it would be like, well, the problem of sin, the problem of rebellion against God, and so on and so forth. So there's different layers and nuances to that. And then finally, what's the solution? And I think... Um, God answers that. He says, well, it's covenant. Covenant is the solution. And in each one of these four questions um, actually get answered within the story that, that Stephen's going to tell us. So there's a lot of just kind of just backstory. So what I want to do right now is I want to get into this. So um, we're going to we kind of peel back some of those initial layers, and then we're going to jump into kind of the main um, corpus of what Stephen uh, unpacks for us. And again, like I said, it's 60 verses long. It's exceptionally long. It's almost like the entire, in my Bible, it's like, really the entire section here, like the whole thing. So it's, it's really long. Um, there's main characters that he has listed here. There's six of them. So take a look at the next slide. There's actually six characters that he lists here. Um, the six characters are, and what I did is I kind of did a, uh, like a little graph to, so you can get an idea in your mind as to how much space is actually given to each character within the story that Stephen's going to tell us. So these are the main characters he's going to kind of recap the story of their life, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, jo uh, Joshua, David, Solomon. So it's, it's interesting because Moses actually gets the majority of information uh, attributed to him. So, and then the, the two main characters, obviously, that are just assumed uh, throughout the entire uh, story. Hello? Is that me? Sorry. Um, is God and, and Israel. These are the other two uh, presumed characters that are just interwoven into the main fabric of this story. So hopefully all this is making sense. You're not bored to, to death yet. Um, but but I, I promise you, if, if you can just stick with me through some of this, um, this actually goes somewhere 
pretty amazing. So, so just follow through what's going on here. Again, the context, Stephen, an early church uh, leader, he basically gets accused of um, attacking Judaism and some of the, um, the, the main symbols of Judaism, which in this case would have been the Torah, uh, the first five books of Moses, and also the temple, which was this, um, this huge uh, property that was on top of the Temple Mount. It was very, very symbolic to the Jewish people. It was the place that represented where God came to live and interact and dwell with his people. It was basically, if you want to think of it this way, it was the Garden of Eden on earth. It was where heaven and earth uh, intersected. So that, that, that's, that's kind of the idea that was behind all this. So these are the main characters. Um, is it? We're having mic, mic issues. So I'm going to be really careful with this thing. It feels really sensitive. So hopefully I don't pop on you guys anymore. I can't promise you that, though. I'll just do my best. Um, so with that, let's, let's jump in and take a look at some of these things because it's really central to the story that uh, Stephen's going to tell us. So let's jump in. Um, next slide, we'll get into a little bit of the story about what's happening here. So I just want to read you some of the passages. Again, like I said, I'm not going to read through the entire thing, but I'm going to read you some of these things, and I'll just make some comments about them. So the story actually starts off like this. Verse 1 of chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? Again, these are in response to some of the things that Stephen said. And then Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So right there, we we begin to see uh, that Stephen's story actually begins with God, the God of glory. He appears to this guy by the name of Abraham. And he says, uh, "When, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I'll show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. Again, these are kind of names that for the most part are just distant to us. So to read that as being basically ancient Babylon because that was where uh, the region of, of Abraham would have come from or ancient or modern day Iraq. Uh, so that was believed to be the area. So imagine this guy that was um, living in modern day Iraq. Um, all of a sudden Yahweh shows up to him in kind of a, a crazy interaction between Yahweh and Abram. Abram was his name Abram, but now gets his name changed to Abraham. And he says, follow me, and I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you territory. I'm going to give you uh, a family. And then God makes these uh, statements to him. He says, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be an extremely blessed man with a blessed family. And through you uh, will flow blessing to all other families on planet Earth pretty amazing like this is what Yahweh says to him like Yahweh makes these promises to Abraham and Abraham basically becomes this father of a nation Um, and then he goes on to say in verse 4 then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran and after his father died God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living so again this kind of answers the question where where are we Uh, we're we're living in in the land that that God gave us uh, via our father Abraham Verse 5, he says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to, uh, give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. So again, question, is this uh, pointing out of the problem of what's wrong? Absolutely. So the question, what's wrong? Well, what's wrong is... Um, again, layers beneath the story, uh, the people of Israel, these people that were given by Yahweh this land, 
they, they didn't honor Yahweh. They didn't respect Yahweh. They didn't agree. They didn't live in agreement with Yahweh. And as a result of that, the problem comes into play. They are going to be dispossessed from the land um, and then move into another territory or be forced to move into another territory, a.k.a. exile. So this is what he's saying for 400 years. And he says, but I will judge the nation that they will serve or that they serve. And then God said, after they will come out and they will worship me in the place. And he gave him a covenant of circumcision. So again, question of um, what's the solution? Well, in this case, the solution is in the form of circumcision, which if you know anything about circumcision is a physical act upon a male body to basically cause him to become fruitful, the idea behind that. But the real big idea behind that was through the cutting of the male organ, which, again, if you know anything about a, a patriarchal society, um, men, were they important or not important in that culture? They, they were, like, like, central, like, right? That was the idea in a patriarchal society. Without men, without men being able to recreate or procreate, um, you, you have no culture, no society. So if you touch the jewels of or the most sacred part of a male body, can you potentially run the risk of harming or damaging the future? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. So, so what's God saying through this act of circumcision? He's saying, look, I want you to entrust the future to me. I promise you, I'll give you a future. But you have to trust and trust to me the most sacred jewel, the most sacred thing you have. And I promise you, in reciprocation, I, I will bless you. You will be fruitful. You will be a nation that will, that will be a blessing to all the nations. But you've got to trust me. And through this act, God establishes what's called circumcision, which is this really sacred act. So it was a way of God establishing covenant. It's a, another way to think about covenant is is God establishes his covenant. Again, there's a whole lot of backstory to this that um, I, I can go into, but I want to try to stick as closely to the story that Stephen gives us as I can, um, that God basically says, I'm going to make this covenant. And Abraham agrees. And it's this way of basically saying, I'm going to be in agreement with God. That's what a covenant is. Um, you have an initiator of that covenant, and then you have one that agrees to that covenant. In this case, God's initiating the covenant. In this case, Abraham is demonstrating his agreement with God by way of what? <laughs> by way of what? Circumcision, right? So, so Abraham is demonstrating, God, I trust you. I trust my future to you by way of agreeing to undergo this painful process called circumcision. It's his way of saying, I'm, I'm aligning my heart, my life, all that I am, in agreement with the covenant-making God who promises and promises good. You guys following so far? You all right? Keeping awake? All right. It's a good story so far, right? Kind of? Sort of? You guys, you guys are right? All right. Now, I, again, I, I realize if you're a Christian here today and, you've, and you're not really familiar with all this, you really should be familiar with this. This is the backstory to how you are a Christian. All right? If, if, if this is disinteresting to you, my hope is that somehow it would become interesting to you. Um, but as we continue jumping into the story, here's what it keeps going on. So next slide. We'll keep reading. And verse 9 says, and the patriarchs. Now, now again, this basically fast forwards to um, um, Abraham's sons, actually grandsons. And he's got 12 of them. And it says, and these patriarchs, they were jealous of Joseph. Now, again, a lot of story is just assumed that you already know. Um, so Abraham has a son. His son's name is Isaac. Isaac has a son. His sons, two sons are Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 
sons, 12 sons, and one of his sons is this little punk kid by the name of Joseph, all right? And I, and I mean, punk kid is that he's a spoiled, rotten punk kid that definitely knew that dad loved him. He milked the system, and as a result of milking the system, dad loved him. Um, and again, this kind of goes into a whole other backstory. Jacob actually had two wives, um, at least two wives that we, we know of, which, which is always a bad idea. Because at some point, one wife is going to be favored over the next, and that's exactly what happened. And so guess whose wife uh, Joseph came from? He came from the favored wife, right? So he shows all this favoritism to Joseph and basically excludes all the other kids. So you would imagine in that context, extremely dysfunctional, by the way, just like, I thought the Bible is like filled with all sorts of great, like, stories for me to emulate. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, there is great advice to be given in various parts, but the point of the matter is if you look at the Bible, it's part of the problem that we oftentimes have with the Bible, is we look at the Bible as a story of stories of how to follow. Don't follow Jacob's example. Don't follow Joseph's example, right? It's, it's highly dysfunctional. But there is a story that this story is pointing to, okay? And, and that's what uh, Stephen is really trying to get the point across. So he tells us, but the patriarchs are jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt, but God was with them. This is, again, this points to, this is a signpost. It's a big, flashing, neon sign, all right? Pointing to the big story. Um, so in the midst of these small stories, this is like a signpost pointing to the big story. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh of Egypt. Next slide. Verse 25, again, just kind of jumping forward a little bit into the story of Moses. It says, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So, again, I just, I literally skipped forward hundreds of years for you guys. So, if you're trying to keep track in a chronological manner, like, uh, I just completely blew your mind right now because you're like, what's going on? Um, what happened was I jumped forward. So, again, that's what, exactly what Stephen does. He, he jumps from these main characters. Now, he fast forwards into the life of this guy by the name of Moses. Moses um, is, you know, living in Egypt. He gets raised um, kind of in a context where he doesn't really, I mean, he might know that he's Jewish, but he's raised within the system of Pharaoh. So he's, you know, educated within the system of Pharaoh. He knows the way Pharaoh's court works. Um, he really is, in a lot of ways, kind of the prince of Egypt. No, 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 no pun on the actual movie, Prince of Egypt. But it's kind of the idea. That's really who he is. He's this prince of Egypt. But he has sort of dual citizenship because he's also um, a Jew. Um, and he's going to play a really significant role in this. But verse 25, Stephen reminds us, Moses uh, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they didn't understand. So again, little backstory: Moses comes on the scene. He uh, sees a, a Jewish guy being taken advantage of, being oppressed, uh, being physically abused. Moses stands up and grabs a rock and kills the guy, right? Kills the Egyptian, right? So again, part of the storyline of the Bible where you're like, it is bloody, it's extremely violent, and, that's exactly, and, and this is out of the hand of Moses. He is going to be the deliverer. He is slaughtering people, right? And then storyline... Unreal, uh, uh, unveils to us that Moses has to run for his life, so he flees. But what Stephen tells us is that Moses is going to be this, this main deliverer of, of God's people, but the Jewish people didn't recognize it. They didn't accept him. They didn't receive him. They weren't just like, we're so glad you're here, Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you for rescuing us. In fact, Stephen wants them to know that, remember, first of all, when, when, when Moses comes on the scene, 
our fathers, our forefathers actually rejected Moses. They didn't accept him. They weren't wildly excited about him showing up on the scene. They actually turned away from him. Now, skip forward a little bit to uh, the next verse, which we'll take a look at on the slide, in verse 33 to 35. Um, this is kind of where the story gets really good. I'll just, uh, I'll read it. It says, then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. And as Moses later on, 40 years later, um, he goes off into what's described as the backside of the desert. So he's, Moses kind of undergoes somewhat of an exile. So he's on the backside of the desert. It's just him, God, his uh, crazy father-in-law, and uh, his, his wife. And so here he is on the backside of the desert, tending sheep. And then it says, and the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. He sees this burning bush. Uh, from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. This is like one of those, um, I don't know, how you, wormhole where heaven and earth come together. Like, like God intersects into our space-time continuum. And it's God speaking directly to Moses on and within the context of this physical planet. And then uh, God speaks to him. He says, I surely have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, imagine you're being Moses, and God says, I'm going to send you. I hear the great pain and suffering and the oppression that they're undergoing. I'm sending you, Moses, now to go go into the, uh, go back to the Jewish people and deliver them. If you were Moses, immediately in your mind, you'd be like, I've, I've already done that. It didn't go too well for me. They ran me out of town. They rejected me. And Moses, again, following the storyline, is obedient to Yahweh. Um, even though it's, it's, you know, takes a little bit of coaching and coaxing uh, by Yahweh to get Moses to do this. And then Moses ends up uh, giving in and doing what Yahweh asked him to do. It says, uh, I will now send you to Egypt. Verse 35, and then this Moses, whom they rejected. Now, again, uh, if you're Stephen and you're repeating something, this is the second time he's repeated this about Moses. Uh, first time you guys rejected him. Second time, this is a message. This is a subliminal message that he's trying to send to the people whom he's talking. Now, I don't know what the title over this section of your Bible says. Some of your, some of your Bibles might say, you know, Stephen's Sermon. I, I don't know if, if anybody has that. This is not a sermon. This is purely a monologue. In fact, it's, it's Stephen's defense. Stephen is in front of a mad, raging horde of religious leaders that uh, just a few years, perhaps, earlier killed Jesus. And now Stephen is standing before these very angry, uptight, frustrated religious leaders who are basically asking him questions as to why have you defamed the main pillars that give us identity, meaning the Torah and the temple? Why, why are you defaming these things? Now Stephen's giving his answer, his response. And then he's sending this message saying, look, remember Moses uh, was rejected by, by our forefathers. Uh, he says this a couple times. In verse uh, 35, he says, Moses, whom you rejected, saying, who made you a ruler or a judge? And this man God sent as both ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. So who sent Moses? Let's read it. Who sent Moses? God. Uh, Yahweh. Yahweh is the one that sent Moses. For what purpose? To be the redeemer. Um, and what's the receptivity of the Jewish people? Rejection. Rejection. Yeah, they're not happy. They're not excited. It goes on to say, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt, in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, it's, it's interesting, the, the usage of 
terms that, that Stephen uses. Uh, he notices that, that Moses does signs and, and wonders, which are actually words, if you're familiar with the story of, uh, that Luke tells in the gospel account, um, he repeatedly describes Jesus as doing miracles and signs. So what's the implication? Well, the implication is that Yahweh is, and is doing the same thing through Jesus, whoever Jesus is, as he had done through a previous redeemer. We know him as, as Moses. So there's some parallels that are going on here that are really significant to the main story. Verse 37, and this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And that's a really important phrase because the, this taps into this hope that Jewish people had. The hope was that one day God would provide another redeemer like Moses, another prophet like Moses that will rescue them and redeem them and take them out of exile and help them in their plight and in their difficulties. And so a lot of Jews, and Jews to this day uh, that, are, that are Orthodox, and there's a lot of Jews that are secular Jews, but Jews that are Orthodox to this day and ask them, like, what's your great hope? A lot of them would say, our great hope is that one day God would send us a Messiah, a king, that will come and, and rescue us, rescue us from our plight, rescue us from the anti-Semitism that's within this world. And uh, that's, that's a great hope. And so he's tapping into this, this underlying theme that Moses is raising up for himself a prophet, or God is raising up for uh, himself a prophet like Moses. In verse 38, it says, this is one, the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles, or the living word of God, uh, to give to us. Our fathers, now here's, here's another underlining important element. Our fathers refused to obey him. So you imagine, here's, here's Yahweh. He loves uh, the, this community of people that are oppressed, that are crying out from underneath the hardship and difficulties and challenges. And God responds by sending this man Moses. Moses comes and he performs signs and wonders. And you would expect that these people are, are excited to receive anything else that Yahweh has offered. Because if good has already come out of the hand of Yahweh, what can be anticipated to come out of the hand of Yahweh at future moments? Good or bad? Good, right? If God has a track record of good, then why would you all of a sudden expect evil to come on from his hand? And so Yahweh brings the people of Israel to this state, where this place, uh, Mount Sinai, where he then gives them something, uh, the word of God. And the people of Israel were told they don't receive it with excitement and joy and happiness and, and open-heartedness. They actually reject it. So you guys following along? There's, there's, there's some themes that are rising. Themes are pretty simple. Yahweh's really good. Good comes from the hand of Yahweh. Provision comes from the hand of Yahweh. Um, and rebellion, rejection, obstinacy come from the hands of the recipients of Yahweh's good. Does that narrative ring a bell in, in anyone's heart, life, in a world? Um, it should, because it's, it's supposed to. The, the idea is to basically tap us as, as a humanity into this greater narrative of, of God at work. And then it goes on to say, and I'll pick it up around verse uh, 39, our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Interesting. Rather than turning to Yahweh, the, the giver of good, they, they turned to Egypt, which was this oppressive state of destruction, of military, of good, good, good gifts like uh, leeks and onions and whips and forced labor and no pay. And, 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 that's, and so, so here they are 
in this situation where it's like rather than turning to Yahweh, saying Yahweh more, they're, they're, they're saying we long for Egypt. We just want to go back to that place where we were before. And it says um, in verse 40, he says, they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf for themselves in those days. And they offered sacrifices to the idol. And they were rejoicing. Here's a really important phrase. They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. This is a really loaded term. Works of your hands. So what should this phrase, work of hands, remind you of? Well, he goes on to say, and he actually uses that same phrase down a little bit further in verse uh, 43, but God turned away and he gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophet. So what is Yahweh to do? Yahweh is this giver of good. Yahweh is the giver of life. Yahweh uh, is, is calling these people who have rebelled, have done nothing but evil. They are literally, case in point, enemies of Yahweh. What and how does Yahweh treat enemies? Kindness. With good. Over and over and over again. How does Yahweh's uh, people respond to him with, with rebellion and rejection over and over and over again? Longing for uh, these uh, alternative pathways and alternative lifestyles that are, are literally pathways to, to death. All the way to the point where he says that they, they wanted to form for themselves out of the works of their own hands these little images, these statues, these golden calves, and then bow down and worship them. And there's all sorts of implications of of sexual uh, misconduct and idolatry that goes along with all those practices and well, so on and so forth. But what we see here within the storyline, a really tragic verse, this is in verse 43, but God turned away and gave them over to the worship of their gods. What is one of, one of the most terrifying realities in this universe? Uh, C.S. Lewis has put it this way. Um, there's really only two people. There are people in this universe that say, thy will be done. And then there are those to whom Yahweh says, Thy will be done. That's filled with angst. It's filled with pain. It's filled with suffering. It's filled with breaking down, falling apart. And this is basically what Yahweh is saying. He says, like, you're, this is what you want. This is what your heart longs after. If you long after these images that you make with your own hands, that you craft, that you fabricate, that you forge by the works of your own power, by your own energies. If that's what your heart longs for more than the life-giving creator, God, then you can just sense the angst in Yahweh's heart is to give you over to it. That, that by definition, is, is hell. It is, is where the, the creator God uh, gives his creation over to what their hearts long for, which always is some form or another of, of brokenness or idolatry. In verse... Um, you guys following along so far? You guys doing okay? 42. Uh, told you this is a long passage. What, where are we at time-wise? Am, am I going way over yet? What time is it? 10 or 7. Okay, we're, we're, we're doing good. We're doing good. I got a few more things to read. And I'll wrap this up. Wow, it's amazing. Like, this can actually be done. Um, verse 42, it says, But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heavens, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the... 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God Rephidim and the images that were made 
uh, to worship, and I sent you into exile beyond Babylon. So the, 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 the rendering of God over his people that he really genuinely desperately wants to be in covenantal relationship is God says, because your hearts keep long. So let me, let me put this in another context. W- w- marriage. What, what happens when a spouse makes this decision that says, I, I just don't love you anymore? don't want to be with you anymore my heart's no longer in this and and the other spouse says but but i think we can make this work but i love you we've got you know many many years under our belts and we've got kids that bear our image that look like us that have our characteristic traits there's we built a life together uh there are investments that you and i not just simply financial but we've invested together our souls have been intertwined like like what should that spouse do um it's painful it's painful and, and and this is exactly the relationship that that yahweh had with with israel was his big main point was he wanted to use this creation his family to to bring blessing to break forth blessing upon all the planet and he was his aim was to to select a man and who was going to become a nation and through this nation was going to be a blessing to all other nations but the very nation that he had called to be a reflector of his name was constantly a nation wanting to break covenant with him, was constantly wanting to go, you know, uh, into the brothels and prostitute themselves away and, and turn away from Yahweh, from Yahweh God. And yet God over and over and over again would, would, would go back and forth between this. Um, I'm going to give you away. I'll, I'll let, you, let you go. But I don't want to let you go because I, I love you. I'm deeply committed to you. So, so you, you sense the pain, you sense the angst of Yahweh, God, always trying to um, demonstrate um, and to bridge the gap between himself and this greatly distrusting people group, um, which really is representative of the entire whole world. Like, it's you. It's me. We're just simply distrusting of, of, of Yahweh, God. Uh, we don't, we're not convinced he loves us. We're not convinced. Um, we, we struggle with that. We wrestle with that. And this is how we see embodied even within the people of Israel. So with that, um, we move on into sort of the, the and I'm just going to lump these three together. It's this uh, picture of uh, Joshua, David, and Solomon all kind of being uh, lumped together. Um, and I'll just kind of make some quick statements and I'll, I'll wrap this up. Um, uh, that all three of these, Joshua, David, and Solomon, they seem to represent um, God's um, reaction or response in allowing a place for him to to physically take up residence amongst his people otherwise known as as a tabernacle so let me let me summarize some thoughts here so far okay so abraham um what the main story behind abraham that that stephen wants us i think to to get or wants the people to whom he's talking about to get is that um he's the father of the covenant uh slash nation or the people of god that, that abraham is the father of this nation and that god calls god selects god makes covenant um the second thing that we see is moses that moses seems or i should say joseph joseph seems to encapsulate sort of this this theme that though he was rejected by his brothers he was god's agent of salvation right so, so joseph was rejected by his family but he actually is the main agent of god's salvation following along so far um the same can actually be said of moses moses um, again, um, rejected by the, the, by the people, um, but is God's agent. So, so you get this theme. God's good. He's a covenant-making God. 
Um, and yet the, the means or the agents that he sends to undo evil and to bring forth or to break open good, they are constantly being rejected by God's, God's people. <laughs> you, you guys following? Does it make sense? Does, does any of this resonate with any of you in your own heart? Like the story of your life, right? It, it should because that, that's, that's really the story of, of all of us. And then uh, thirdly, or fourth, I should say, Joshua, David, and Solomon, they represent the fact that, that God allows for this dwelling place, for the tabernacle, the temple, to become a place. But what happens within the story that he impacts now is that this place where Yahweh comes and dwells, first of all, in this tent, it's called the tabernacle, and then later in this, like, brick-and-mortar building called the temple, which is basically uh, re- replaced the tabernacle, and it was, uh, it was the place where Yahweh would come to dwell. Um, this place, uh, Stephen wants them to be aware of, has actually become or taken the place of God. In other words, it has been forged by hands, been made by human beings, and by definition has become this idol. And so Stephen says these, these final words. I want you to listen because um, it's really powerful. Um, let, me, let me read the verse just before it. In verse uh, 49, referring to the temple, he says, uh, God says through the prophets, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So so there's that phrase again, um, work of hands. On, On one hand, you have, no pun intended, you have the works of hands coming from human beings. On the other hand, you have the works of Yahweh's hands, which is the cosmos, the universe, everything. God's saying that, look, um, yeah, you can build me a house, but really? Really? You, you expect, I mean, don't, don't expect Yahweh, who created all things, to only take up residence there. Because Yahweh's hope from the very beginning was always to become available and accessible to every human being that bears his image. Always. It's always been God's, God's plan from the very beginning. But what you have, first century, which Stephen was standing before, was this group of people that had forgotten the storyline. They forgot the storyline. It's a question. Um, what does it look like to become people that forget the storyline, to forget the narrative that God is, has called us to be in? Well, I, I think, in short, if you understand a little bit about the storyline, if I can summarize it this way, the people of Israel, they were called to be a nation of, of priests, among many other things. But they were called to be a nation of priests. So what is a priest? A priest is sort of this go-between. Um, that represents God to people and represents people to God. There's go-between. So they were to be a nation, not with priests, but a nation of priests. So in other words, the whole nation of God's people, Israel, were to be this nation that to the entire world, that the world can look at Israel and say, ah, that's what it's like to be people in this world living in agreement with Yahweh really good that was the hope anyway but what happened was rather than israel becoming the solution to demonstrate with faithfulness what it looks like to be in covenant relationship with god they constantly became this case study in what it looks like to be in rebellion against god and therefore lost the plot line and this is what stephen says to this community people i'm done here he says in verse 51 you stiff-necked uncircumcised, now listen, uncircumcised in heart and ears. It's kind of a shocking statement. What, what does it mean? Because if, if you know anything about circumcision, circumcision has nothing to do with the heart or, or the ears. It has to do with, with the physical body. 
So what's he talking about? Well, he's actually referring to a statement that Moses makes um, at one point where he speaks to the people of Israel. He says, you need to circumcise your heart. And this was basically a way of saying the way that you will truly be God's covenant people is if your heart becomes the place of Yahweh's residency. Uh, hundreds of years later, two prophets, Ezekiel and another guy by the name of Jeremiah, um, they, they, they looked forward to a day that one day God would actually write his Torah on the very center that drives us, our hearts. In other words, our desires become Yahweh's desires. And so he's saying, you guys, your desires demonstrate nothing but disagreement with Yahweh. You guys, temple leaders, people that occupy and run and own and oversee and are caretakers over this massive uh, construction called the Temple Mount. If you, again, I, I, I wish I had a slide to show you the enormity of this thing. It's absolutely massive. Um, it, it, it would be kind of like Vatican City, this massive, massive construct that, that people flock to uh, for many, many years. Millions of people would come to every single year. And so what he's saying is that you guys... Um, you're, you're stiff-necked, meaning you're like a child trying to be put into a car seat that absolutely does not want to be in a car seat. You know, you know stiff-necked? Mom's like trying to contort your body to sit in You're just like, no! Stiff-necked. Like, that, that is the picture of what it looks like to say, no, God. And Stephen's saying, you guys are stiff-necked. Um, you're uns- uncircumcised. Your, your heart has nothing in agreement with Yahweh. And he goes on to say, as your fathers did, so do you always do. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and you murdered, and you have received the law and delivered by the hands of angels, and you did not keep it. His simple words are a really cutting accusation, saying that you guys should have known, and yet you have repeatedly over and over and over again been demonstrators of the fact that you're nothing uh, unlike your forefathers. You're just like them. You have denied and turned your backs upon Yahweh himself by turning your backs upon Yahweh's servant. It's heavy words. It's heavy words. Um, And and I want to read to you in in closing just the the final story. But before, I want want to just take a look at uh, four quick takeaways. I'll keep these really quick. One um, is that all of us are, are prone to idolatry, just like the religious leaders. They were prone towards idolatry, meaning we have these tendencies to place things above and beyond God. So we look at things like affluence, you know, money, power, strength, ability, nobility, and, and we're like, we want this above and beyond anything else in our life. Image, we're so preoccupied and consumed with what we look like, how we dress, how fit we are, how acceptable we are to, our, uh, to the eyes of all these people that, that don't really, really, at the end of the day, care about us. But, but it's what drives us. It's what drives our culture, our nation, the advertising of our nation, and, and, and this, um, um, at least, really, idea of, of freedom. But I'm not going to go any further on that. But we are all prone towards ideology. Secondly, we are prone to miss God. Uh, and we, we do this by basically trying to force upon our lives the story of God. So here's what we do. Uh, another way I like to think about this is we like to accessorize ourselves with God. We treat God like a necklace or a bracelet or a piece of fashionable jewelry. So, so like, like when we need God, when we want God, we accessorize with God. 
The rest of our lives are just like, if I'm going to get drunk, I just get drunk. I don't really, don't really need God. God doesn't fit into this narrative. Uh, the way we use our sexuality, if we're like, I want to go sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend or move in with my boyfriend or girlfriend or engage in sexual activity that is just broken and destructive, uh, we're like, we don't really need God in this section, so we just remove God conveniently. And yet when we come to church, we accessorize with God. We put God on. We take God off when he is inconvenient. That is a very clear way of just simply saying, just, just like the religious leaders here, we try to contort the story of God around our brokenness. And, and we, we then lead, number three, that brokenness and ruin are, are the results of idolatry and injustice. It's just the constant result of that. In other words, our lives never make progress. We never get better. What we might end up doing is we trade one form of idolatry for another form of idolatry, and that's, that's, that's about the best that we can come up with in our lives. And then fourthly, the great thing is that there is hope actually found in Yahweh's solution, a.k.a. God with us, Jesus. This is a story. This is a story that Stephen told. This is a story that Peter, James, John, New Testament writers told. This is a story that first century martyrs told because they believed it with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and might that, that Yahweh has not abandoned this nation of re- rebels, nor this creation uh, of, of human beings that are constantly trying to emancipate themselves from Yahweh. But that Yahweh loves us. And, and Yahweh has come to take upon himself the consequences. That, that's, that's what Jesus did on the cross. The, the, the brutality, the, the, the terrorizing, the death uh, of Jesus is, is intended to basically tell us that, that should you keep going down a path that says no to Yahweh, that says no to God, that turns away from God, is, is constantly going to be a path that leads you to, to death and brokenness and destruction. These are the inevitable consequences. And the people of Israel that held to, clung to this temple, they soon within 80, 40, which probably would have been about another 30 years, they would have actually lost the temple because it would be destroyed. 80, 70, we, we know the historical fact. It's gone. You go to Israel today, it doesn't exist. It's not there, um, which, again, a whole other question is going to be raised. But I want to finish with this. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and I just want you to listen. I want you to listen to the rest of the story because this is how the crowd responded to Stephen, who's just telling the story. He's telling the story of, of, of how God sought to come and rescue re- rebels. Um, and what you need to do is you need to think about this story. You need to think about it, ponder it, consider it. Where are you at in the story? Are you one that, that, that believes and trusts and entrusts yourself to the, to the God that created this story, that initiated, that instigated this story? Or do you find yourself in the context of religious leaders saying that we, we don't want to lose what we got. And so therefore we will violently protest and resist uh, any attempt to weave the story of God into our own or to overtake our own. So just listen to the story. Um, if you want, you can close your eyes. It doesn't matter. Um, but um, just listen to it. It says, Now when I heard these things, they, the religious leaders, they were enraged And they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he was full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice. 
and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's Luke's way of saying he died. He died. You and I are invited into this story. It's, it's a story that doesn't end in death because we know the rest of the story. It actually ends in resurrection. Just like Stephen died, Jesus died. Just like Jesus rose, so Stephen will rise. That's why Stephen could boldly proclaim this story. If you think through this, wrestle through this, and answer those questions, who holds the key to your life? Who narrates your story? You? Culture? Something you received? Something that was handed down? Something that was given to you by your mom and dad who also were broken? Well, the invitation is that you can receive the story that God gives you today. It's a story of life. It's a story of brokenness, but it's a story that leads to life. It's a story of hope. As we worship, as we sing, as we respond, we'll partake of communion, which is like this tangible way of reminding us of the fact that, that we are broken people, living amongst broken people, and we break people by our actions. <laughs> and yet we have a God that invites us to himself to be made whole in this process. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the way Paul says. But all of us are invited to be made whole.